This week on a lively experiment, the state is ready to take over the Providence schools, but a new group wants a say. And the Senate steps in to take a look at a no-bid contract. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us this week, political and business editor for WPRI, Ted Nisi, Michelle Smith, correspondent for the Associated Press, and Ian Donis, political reporter for The Public's Radio. And welcome, everyone. We appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us. The long-awaited first day of school arrived this week for thousands of students in the Providence school system. While many questions remain about the condition of the district's buildings and what a state takeover will look like when it is completed next month. On Wednesday, a group of parents and students petitioned the Rhode Island Department of Education for a formal role in the state intervention. That request will be heard next week. Um, Ian, let's start with you. I'm not sure how far that request is going to go. Some people have said, where were these people all along? But I understand that parents and students do want to make sure they're heard in this intervention. Yeah, of course. And I think everyone agrees that public participation is a good thing when it comes to politics or the quality of schools. But it's hard not to have sympathy for the viewpoint of Education Commissioner Angelica Inf Infante Green. It reminds me a little bit of Colin Powell and President George W. Bush. P Powell told, told Bush about the pottery barn rule that if you invade Iraq, you in essence own it and you're responsible for what happens <laughs> next. And as we all know, these issues with the Providence schools being way underperforming have been present for decades. There's been a lack of collective action to address that. Now Infante Green is in the breach. She is the person on the firing line who will be held accountable for what happens for better or worse. So it's hard not to have some sympathy for her view that she should have the utmost authority in trying to implement a plan to improve things. And it looks like she's going to, in terms of choosing a principal, Frank Gallo's just kind of warming the chair right now. Uh, it looks like she might be going out of state, which I don't think is an altogether bad thing. Yeah, I think that's possible. I mean, I, I think on all this, um, at this point, we, we need specifics. We've had a summer of listening, and, uh, you know, we had the Johns Hopkins reports diagnosing the problem. We're talking a lot about a state takeover, but what does that look like in practice? You know, are we bringing in national charter school organizations and, and, and divvying up the Providence, the current Providence schools? Are we remixing where the kids go? Will some school buildings be closing? You know, that that's going to be when the rubber meets the road on this. How is this actually going to be executed and what will be the changes? And I think at Fonte Green, you can see this week that, you know, I think the honeymoon is starting to be over for her where you had, she came in, she was a fresh face, she was, she was talking very candidly and I think people found that refreshing. Now, uh, you know, people are starting to say, okay, you know, where's the beef? What's this going to look like? And, and what role will the public have in this? Or is it going to be Infante Green and there, but for by extension, the governor and her senior advisors running the Providence schools almost directly? What about the larger issue, Michelle, of she's coming in, she's the commissioner for the whole state and has a huge challenge with these test scores and everything else. You wonder, and we've talked about this on the show before, Providence is taking up so much of her time, but they're, they're real... Uh, issues facing Rhode Island public schools. Yeah, and I mean, the the thing is, though, that Providence is such a big part of the state. Um, you know, it's a massive proportion of the population lives in Providence, and um, I think she has said that any changes that happen in Providence um, 
are uh, going to help the state overall, but also some of the changes that she makes in Providence might um, might trickle out to other communities. There might be some statewide initiatives coming out of that. Are you surprised that there, it's been pretty quiet up at the General Assembly? I mean, I don't think they're looking to, to jump in, but the state puts in so much money, and you really haven't heard much from the leadership or from the rank and file on this issue. I, again, I don't expect the General Assembly to jump in unless it has to, but they have a big stake in this. Yeah, I am not surprised by that, Jim, because I think that we see from the legislative leadership, the city council leadership in Providence, they are essentially willing to give Commissioner Infante Green, relatively speaking, carte blanche to implement her program. The concerns we're seeing are more from the activist community, the Providence Student Union, and it's as Ted said that, you know, in general, everyone can agree that Providence schools should be better, but the details of how that happens, the details of what happens with the contract with the Providence Teachers Union, you know, you can't make changes, real changes, without upsetting some people. So those, that's part of the key thing to watch moving think, forward. And I think you see here, like, that's why I said specifics, because I think now where we're starting to see little pockets of opposition or concern, it's because we're getting more specific. We're getting to the moment of the takeover. We're getting to who will be picked as superintendent, you know, and as, as Ian said, it's true. Everyone agrees that the Providence schools have have huge challenges and, and need attention and need help, but there's always going to be argument over, you know, what changes are the right ones. And again, I think the structure of this, the, these takeovers have become very controversial in some places, depending on there. And I wouldn't be surprised if, depending on the the way that Infante Green shapes her plan, you see more, you might see opposition rise up in the General Assembly, or at least more expressions of concern. I think people aren't going to express concern until there are specifics to be concerned about. Just final thought, Ian, you've had her on several times, uh, as you guys have also. She gets bonus points for being out there. I mean, she's very, uh, and, and comes from a state probably where you kind of have to coexist with the media a little bit more than some do in this state. What, what do you sense her, do you sense from her any buyer's regret coming, or is she taking on the challenge? I don't see any buyer's regret. I, I think she is fully enmeshed in this. Uh, it's hard to see, you know, will she still be here in five years? We don't know how far along will the Providence schools be in five years. We don't know, but I think she is fully invested in this effort to try and improve the Providence schools and really make a difference. Okay, we have heard an awful lot about the IGT no-bid contract, Twin River, going back and forth. Well, as Ted reported this week, we're actually going to get a chance to hear about this, the Senate. And I'm wondering, you can set the table. You remember we had all those Senate hearings on the Paw Sox that kind of had the road trip. I don't know that it's going to be that uh, extensive, but what, what will we hear out of this? I can imagine the, the pie charts and, and figures and consultants and lobbyists. Are all yeah, gonna... I mean, I think Senate President Ruggiero in some ways sees himself as the adult in the room on some of these hot-button issues that inevitably seem to wind up as a Raimondo versus Mattiello thing. And uh, he and the other the rest of the Senate leadership think one way that you diffuse some of the public controversy around something like the Paw Sox plan or the IGT deal is to have an extensive series of hearings. No, you know, don't ram it through. You know, Rogeria went out of his way in the statement about the IGT deal saying, since this is coming up very late in the session, we're going to wait until the fall. We're going to have hearings. Um, I think I think there's all sorts of things to be looked at here. You know, there's there's been a lot of noise around the IGT contract, but there's specifics that can be looked at. What is the monetary value of the contract to IGT over the 20 years? What is the state getting? How does that compare with other states? Some of that's been talked about, but I think hearings are a natural time for that, as well as what would be offered by Scientific Games or Twin River or whoever is going to would try to compete if this was put out to bid. What would they offer, and you know how it would be different? And it's I think 
inevitably, too, I there will be a part of this that will also be a conversation around the drop in gambling revenue that Rhode Island's already experiencing from Encore in Boston. It's clearly worse than Twin River expected, they've said. And so I think, I think you're going to see that be part of the mix of the conversation, too. Michelle? Yeah. Um that is the backdrop of, of so much of this is that gambling revenues are down and it, they represent such a huge proportion of the state budget. So when you have these uh, casinos opening, the big one in Boston or other ones, you know, Plainville or other ones in Massachusetts that are going to be drawing a Massachusetts crowd that isn't going to want to drive all the way to Rhode Island, Rhode Island's going to be hurting for money. Um, you're already seeing, like with uh, sports gambling, the revenue has not been huge, and it, in in really any of the states where where it's through, I think there's now 13 states where you can gamble on on sports, and um, the the projections that they that were out there of oh this would be kind of the new thing that that states could rely on, it just hasn't really met with the expectation. We did, AP did an analysis um, of the seven states, seven states that had reported gambling revenue as of last fiscal year. It was only like 70 or so million dollars. Mm. It's not a lot. And um, that's not going to, in Rhode Island, it's probably not going to make up for the hit that we're taking from increased competition in Massachusetts. Going up in Boston. These Senate hearings will be an opportunity to have an open process on an issue that has been very charged and has be become a full employment project for lobbyists and <laughs> lawyers and communications professionals. So there's value in that. I mean, uh, IGT has about a thousand jobs in Rhode Island. Most people would say you don't want to see a company like that leave. But at the same time, there are some close ties between the governor and Donald Schweitzer, the former chairman of IGT, who remains as a lobbyist for the company and who was tapped by Governor Raimondo to be the treasurer for the Democratic Governors Association, which she now chairs. So it's an opportunity for some transparency on that. But in terms of the slumping gambling revenue, that is a huge concern for the state. And with the introduction of mobile sports betting, you know, everyone has an iPhone. That will probably boost revenue a little bit. But the big concern is how the vast majority of Rodan's gambling revenue comes from video slot machines, and younger people are less interested in playing those video slots than an older demographic, and that is a very troubling direction for one of Rodan's largest sources of state revenue. And it's not like we can just turn the spigot off and say, oh, well, let's rely on business development now. All that should have been done years ago. I, it was a weird rollout with this app yesterday. I saw everybody tweeting. It's like, wouldn't you want to have like a big ribbon cutting? Now we're ready to go. It's almost like a soft opening. If you're really wanting people to, to, to get into it, it kind of dribbled out and, oh, now it's here. Can we use it on an iPhone? Can we use it on an Android? All of that. It seemed very odd to me. Yeah, the mobile sports betting, I think I expected more of a big bang start to it, but I, as I listened to what they were saying, Paul Grimaldi, the spokesman for the lottery, called it a soft launch, and, you know, I I suppose uh, in a state that went through the UHIP debacle in the last few years, maybe they wanted to more quietly roll out new technology. Warmer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, and, uh, you know, make sure it didn't, you know, the phone didn't explode when you turned on the app or something. Uh, so, 
I think they're, they probably want to get the kinks out. But, I, you know, you have to say they, they did meet their goal of getting it up for the first NFL game, which is uh, we're taping on Thursday. This, that's tonight. Um, because last year they missed part, they, the part of why part revenue of season, was yeah. so disappointing to Rhode Island last year. Is they missed, I believe they missed the World Series. They missed the first part of the NFL season. And they season, took a bath in the football. Super Bowl. Yeah, and they took a bath in the Super Bowl because of the Patriots, um, which I'm not upset about because I more was rooting than betting on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it is important, though, you know, that they've got it online because in New Jersey, 80% yeah. of the sports betting is done online or on mobile devices. So... Um, but again, with all this increased competition, uh, the long-term outlook is not necessarily good. What about the budget uh, coming in a little bit? You had reported a little bit ahead, but again, they've already that money's already committed. We're, we're at an almost ten billion dollar budget. You wonder the one that comes out. Are we going to continue to see this two, three, four percent increase? At some point, do the legislators have to say, particularly with the gambling revenue, maybe we need to reel it in a little bit? Yeah, and I mean we have to look back a long time to find out the first uh, time, the most recent time when a legislative year began without a deficit at the starting point. And there are very worrisome structural deficits that grow ominously large the farther we look out into the future. It's tough to, stand, to cut state spending because there's a small amount of discretionary spending. A lot of it is for fixed costs for education and social services. But you're absolutely right, Jim. I mean, to look out, it, we might see a decline in gambling revenue moving forward. And if you hear, talk to Republicans like Brian Newberry, they say that is a reason to cut state spending. And Rhode Island will always face the challenge that because it is significantly poorer than its two neighbors, it, you know, if you you move, you could move from East Providence to Seekonk and simultaneously lower your taxes and get a, a better funded government because the, they're just richer states. So I think I think that's what sometimes is missing when we talk about you know the budget. Rhode Island can't Rhode Island could just cut the budget and become even weaker compared to its neighbors, but then you might see an exodus if public services get worse. Look look at our conversation about education in Providence today, um, and so I think that's one of the challenge you know and that's a challenge unfortunately caused by the fact that Rhode Island leaders over the last 80 years <laughs> allowed the state to fall far behind Massachusetts from a place of parity. Yeah, I, I just think as they look to the next budget, it's going to be interesting. I think the gambling is really going to be because that's, what is it, the third largest state revenue? Yeah, about they, 400 million. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and that's why, you know, the Senate president has been so bullish on pushing sports betting and revenue, mobile betting. Right? Yeah, I, and there's, a, you know, these kind of concerns drive a lot of the decision making you see at the state house. All right. We, as I was putting together the show this week, I thought there's there's a little bit of a theme. We've lost some flights at um, TF Green Airport. Norwegian Air's pulled out. And then offshore wind, we've given great tax incentives to get in here. And then the governor, of course, we've talked about. I think the jury's still out about ultimately how these um, jobs are going to look over the long run. Ted, you, you focus in. You do a lot on the business. What is the word particularly with TF Green Airport? Is this a bump or is this was this a... a a, a bad strategy in terms of the way they got them in and now some of these airlines are pulling out. Well, uh, Patrick Anderson, another friend of Lively, obviously uh, had a good story, I think, in the journal the other day that had some good context, which is 
all airports see a lot of changes, but because TF Green is small, I think they feel the changes more. You know, when Logan gains and loses flights, there are so many flights at Logan that it's not a huge news story, but TF Green starts from a much smaller base, and so it's very notable. So see, when they, they put such a PR push behind the addition of flights, inevitably those flights disappearing quickly is a problem. It's a little complex right now because it's mixed up with the Boeing yeah, Max, Max disaster and all that, uh, but I do think, you know, TF Green seems like they need, uh, it seems like the strategy they've embraced during the Raimondo administration, you know, throw incentives to start uh, some of these flights and everything has not, you know, the hope, whether it's the tax incentives for offshore wind or the incentives for flights, is that you, you get it started by sort of, you know, seeding it. And then, and then, then it the takes off organically. Off, right? Exactly. And instead, in the airport case, it appears that, you, you know, those went away and they, they didn't keep the flights. Yeah, more broadly, there's this debate about whether economic incentives are good or bad, whether, you know, tax cuts and environmental factors like that should be a greater emphasis. I think, you know, Governor Raimondo says other states use these incentives. You have to have them in the toolbox, but does Raimondo rely on them too much? But there are all these kind of incentives throughout the economy. The New York Times had a story last Sunday about how a tax break championed by President Trump was meant to help poor people people in cities in opportunity zones, and it's mostly benefited rich developers. There are enormous subsidies for growers of corn. So there are all these kind of incentives throughout our economy. And to have a, a thoughtful discussion, you have to look at them in a broader context. Yeah, and on TF Green, for example, I mean, it, they the, when they announced these flights, some of them were sort of you know, questionable to begin with, um, or, you know, Norwegian has been having problems financing and keeping itself going for quite a while. Um, so I think it is also incumbent upon us as reporters to have some skepticism going into these kind of announcements. You know, like Ted said, Logan's not going to have a big press conference with the governor when, uh, you know, a few flights to Nashville are announced. Rhode Island does it. So what are we as reporters doing at the outset to look at those announcements with a critical eye. It seems that every every three days we were having a press conference and it's an easy live shot for noon, right? And you're right, then where is the follow-up yeah, from there? Yeah, and some of these uh, flights never even started. Right. So um, I think it, you know, of course, they're, if they're going to get the attention, they're going to make the announcement and have a big press conference. Um, because generally no one's been following up on it. So the Projo did a very good job at saying, hey, wait a second, where, <laughs> what happened with all these flights? Yeah, and my, uh, my colleague Susan Campbell has been tracking it, uh, you know, the after effects of this too. And she, she uh, reported, I think last week, that uh, for the first five months of the year, TF Green's uh, overall passenger traffic was down 8 or 9%. Um, that's a pretty big the fall year over year. Some of it's probably the reduction in flights, but some of it, you know, you do wonder in the context of the economy, potentially at least slowing down, uh, if that's part of where we're seeing people's discretionary spending on flights and all that. But I do think, you know, TF Green matters. I think it uh, it was uh, instructive to me when, for example, the state was pushing for GE, that one of the things that came up, according to both the governor and people who worked on that project, was they said, you just don't have enough direct flights. So if you base a big company here, if you have the C-suite in Rhode Island, 
And if we're going to be driving to Boston all the time to catch a flight, eh, maybe we'll just be in Boston. Right. Um, whereas if TF Green had enough direct flights to the other cities they wanted to go to, it might look a little different. So, you know, it does. I it does matter. I think in more ways than just can I get can I get to Florida quickly uh, <laughs> once mm-hmm. December hits. Probably good they held for further study the Rhode Island International Airport, Bill, right? (laughs) I was thinking about that when I read. Well, you know, I fly Frontier. There's a direct flight to North Carolina, and it's seasonal. That's the other thing they don't tell you. Some of it's seasonal. Mm -hmm. So I was going to book a flight in November. I went online. All of a sudden it said it ends October 3rd. Mm -hmm. So that even fluctuates what they announce and what it is. Um, The other uh, issue, I'm glad we have the reporters' roundtable here today, access to public records, folks. Um, That is really, it's so important to what we do, but it's because we're trying to report on B, to inform the public. I was, I was not surprised, but I was disheartened again. The Raimondo administration wrapped itself into a pretzel trying to keep documents from Kathy Gregg on IGT. She wrote about this in political scene, waited till the, and how, how many times have we all been through this? 10 days, then I get the 20 day, and then on the last day, you don't really get what you want. So I would like to just talk generally about why that's so important. We have a new attorney general. Um, Ian, you've been fighting this battle, and Michelle also, for a long time, and Ted. Yeah, I would agree with your characterization, Jim. Uh, the Raimondo administration withheld a lot of documents and used a kind of obscure exemption in denying a lot of the, the some of the requests from Catherine Gregg. For IGT, I think yeah. IGT and, documents. And this matters because, as I said earlier, there are a lot of questions that uh, raise questions of conflict in terms of the battle between IGT and Twin River. So transparency is the best sunlight, as Justice Brandeis said, and this uh, these public documents would add to the public record and give a broader public understanding. Steve Brown from the ACLU told the journal that the denial of so many of these records is a matter of great concern because policy making should not occur in a vacuum and he's absolutely right. Yeah and and uh, it's not just the Raimondo administration that does these things. Um, I just had a recent I've been going back and forth with a particular government officials office about a, a public records request where they redacted um, many, many pa- pieces of many pages and said, oh, it's for two reasons, but they won't tell me which redactions are for which reason. So you have to fight with them over these tiny little things, which most people, they're not going to really get why that's important, but it actually tells you what the people we elect are doing in office, how they're spending their time, how they're spending public money, things like that. And um, Voters deserve to know what their government is doing in their name and what people are, who they choose to lead them, are, are how they're spending their time. Um, but people need to make that clear when they're choosing who to vote for that public uh, transparency is important to them. I've uh, I've now covered three governors' administrations. I know I'm, I don't have as much experience as Zian and Michelle do with it, but um, I haven't noticed a big shift. I've found it's it seems like it's it's inevitable whether it's a Democrat or Republican or an Independent or all three, like Lincoln Chafee. Um, they you know government officials generally slow walk releasing information they don't want to release, and they take their time and they make it harder. And I think one thing that has changed in my ten years as a Rhode Island reporter is there are fewer us, right? We've had a drastic diminution in the size of the press corps uh, across all types of media. And there's still a lot of great reporters, the two, the three people I'm with here today, uh, we could all name a bunch of others, but there are just fewer of us. And 
what what the people at home don't see is the fact that therefore the endless fighting with us on giving documents on answering basic questions we're talking about the airport today how easy is it to get the airport to tell us what happened with that flight where is it going mm -hmm. and every extra hour a reporter spends begging pleading fighting to get information that shouldn't be that hard to get is another hour we don't have to work on another story or, or, or look at something else and and it has a bigger effect now as there are just fewer working journalists because of what's happened particularly the newspaper industry but the media more broadly and then a lot of public officials have staff that it Carl called director of communications or spokesperson who are supposed to be answering our questions. They're the deflectors um, in chief often, are they not? Yeah, and there's been like an explosion in their ranks um, throughout government, uh, as has been talked about many times before. Um, and many of them are former reporters and, you know, they do a good, some of them do a good job and some of them, you know, you send them an email and it's like a black hole. Uh, it, it's, um, it is, you know, I think of myself when I am reaching out to a spokesperson, I'm getting this information for the public. I work for the public. Um, you know, my boss is the Associated Press, but, but my job is to inform people about what their government's doing. And that's what we need. We need them to get back to us. Ted made a great point about how there are fewer reporters, and that matters because that means there's less news from the more distant corners of Rhode Island. I think all of us on the panel and you, Jim, have done stories where we've encountered a lot of resistance and hostile sources and have had to use inside sources, and that's fine. That's our job. But because it, Ted makes the point that because there are fewer reporters and the more the government fights us on trying to get these documents, the, the less we can do. And I'm all for, Michelle points to the, you know, the rise ranks of, of PIOs, spokespeople, comms directors. I'm all for good ones mm -hmm. who can, who understand their agency. There, I think of, uh, I, I'll give a shout to Brem McCabe at the Department of Administration has become very expert in her department and I find can often get answers quickly, but there are others who, you know, you're supposed to be the one who understands your, I don't want to explain to the to the spokesperson how, what their agency does because they haven't taken the time to learn. That drives me crazy. All right, we only just have a couple of minutes left. We could go on all day, I'm sure, as you know, with four reporters on the, uh, on the panel. Uh, let's go to outrageous or kudos. Michelle, what do you have this week? I have a kudo for Trinity Rep, which is going to be putting on the Prince of Providence starting next week. Um, it's maybe the most anticipated theatrical <laughs> event uh, of the year, even over Hamilton. Um, and uh, so Mike Stanton's book about Buddy Cianci, it's a lot of the performances look to be sold out, but they extended it. And uh, looks like it's going to be a good show. Ian, you and I lived the Prince of Providence, didn't we? <laughs> we sure did, Jim. Uh, we I'll should have been consulted on this script. <laughs> yeah. I, I started at the Phoenix two weeks uh, before the FBI raided City Hall. <laughs> I knew I was in the right place. But I'll switch it up with two kudos. Uh, one, as a Red Sox fan, I'll offer a hearty congratulations. Congrats to my Yankees fans in Rhode Island. They're having a great season. The Red Sox obviously are not, but watch out for the Astros in the playoffs. And con congratulations to Echo RI, the independent environmental news site. They're celebrating their 10-year anniversary. They've been able to add some staff. They've increased their funding through grants and things like that. And that kind of independent reporting is very valuable. That's great. I'll do an outrage because I know you well, get mad. Well, happens. We have somebody who's outraged. You know, and I guess outrage includes myself. Uh, what? You know, it's always also about what aren't we covering. And, and a story that I just think isn't getting enough attention around is the housing crunch. Um, I look at the numbers uh, for building permits to build new homes. 
uh, regularly, and it just has not recovered from the Great Recession. Rhode Island has really just stopped building new ten years, and uh, and you see the Housing Works Rhode Island will put out its reports on what what rent costs that that most communities in Rhode Island are unaffordable for people making the median wage. That you know sometimes there are issues that for whatever reason aren't bubbling up in the political conversation. Maybe there's no you know, conflict happening about it, so it's not on the front page. But that's an issue that I think affects when we're talking about economic development, all of economic development, that the state really probably should be talking about a lot more. But it's all relative, because look at the Boston mm -hmm. rush that's coming down here, because Boston is like, you think Providence is mm -hmm. bad, right? Well, and of course, if we don't build more housing in Rhode Island, the Boston people can come down with their higher salaries, bid up the prices, and further push people, Native Rhode Islanders, out of being able to afford housing. I just think it's something that, I think it feeds into a lot of the other issues we talk about, uh, you know, why are we going to lose a congressional seat? You know, again, because it's people are moving to North Carolina because it's it's just so much cheaper. So I think that's a housing is something that uh, it would be good to see more talk about. Maybe the future governor candidates can debate it a bit. All right. That's on Ted Nisi's agenda. <laughs> uh, folks, good to have you with us this week, Ted and Michelle and Ian. Always, uh, we would need an hour for all of you, maybe next time. Uh, folks, come back here next week. If you don't catch us at, on Friday or Sunday in our regular time, any number of ways to get lively. We're on YouTube. You can go to our Facebook page, and now you can take us along however you get your favorite podcast. Take us in your pocket as you stroll along in your nightly walk. Um, folks, have a great week, and we'll be back here next year with all the latest as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great week. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.